The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I began last week with you what I said would be a topical series, not a book study of a single book of Scripture, but a study of a topic, and it's the greatest topic of all. I'm calling this series, which I expect to extend into February, In Christ Alone. I desire to track down 12 different texts, and I said last time it could just as easily be 50 or 250 texts of Scripture that exhibit the greatness and uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That's how large the theme is. Today, for the second of these considerations, after we looked at Colossians 1, describing Christ, the co-creator, the one who, Paul said, holds all things together, we look at a psalm, Psalm 2, rather familiar. I hope you'll listen to it as if perhaps you haven't heard it before and hear Christ, the Son of God, described here as King of the universe. Listen to God's word in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O king, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'm sure all of you can picture a well-known face and figure of Prince Charles, the oldest son of the Queen of England. I've always had a little bit of interest in Charlie. I don't know if anybody calls him that. I do. He's about a year older than I am, less than a year older, and that has always interested me as a boy growing up and watching him grow up in, through the news. Of course, you know that his first wife was Lady Diana. My daughter wake, awakened us or made us get up. At, I don't remember. It was 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning 
in the 1980s to uh, watch the great wedding of the century. And I'm sure you know that <clears throat> after Charles and Diana had two sons born to them, the, wedding, uh, the marriage broke up in a spectacular fashion, followed by the very tragic death of Diana. Now, Charles is married again to Camilla. I told my wife, I think Camilla's primary role in life seems to be the wearing of outrageous-looking hats. <laughs> Prince Charles continues, of course, to be the son of a reigning queen and father to a future king named William. But before William can be the king, Charles himself, of course, is in line for that throne of England. And this is going to occur, you realize, only at the death of his mother unless she should abdicate, which most people think is unlikely that she would do. Charles recently turned 70, I think, within weeks ago. And I've watched this man go gray, a lot more gray than I am, by the way, uh, waiting as the heir apparent of the king. And I've thought to myself, well, here he's had this role promised to him all his life, but he could easily, if, if the queen goes on in good health as she seems to be now, who knows, Charles might be 80 years old before he ever wears the diamond-studded crown of England that, that waits for him on exhibit in the Tower of London. Some of you have seen it. What would it be like to spend your whole life knowing you're anticipating this prominent role in the spotlight of the United Kingdom, which you would be able to fulfill for only a very short time in the waning years of your senior citizenship? And also knowing, as they must know, although I guess they can't show it, that the throne that they will inherit or do occupy is a merely ceremonial office, right? You know, the Queen of England, yes, she's important, and yes, she has to sign many papers and meet with the Prime Minister and so on, but she doesn't determine much of anything that happens in the United Kingdom. She lives amid great pomp and ceremony and people bow to her and she moves from her splendid palaces one to another and they put the flag up when she's in residence at uh, whatever palace she's in at the time. But governing? Only as a figurehead, having almost no real power. Well, I began last week to take you on a tour of some premier Bible passages which tell us about the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the things about him, his person and his role that we certainly have to explore is that he is king. He's a true king. He's the greatest of all kings. And I would have you understand today that in total contrast to Prince Charles and the relatively hollow formal throne that he may never live to sit upon, or maybe he will, we look at Psalm 2 in the Word of God, and here is a clear prophetic word from God through his prophet, David, to tell us that while it's not presently visible to the human eye, the Son of God occupies the throne of heaven at God's appointing and God's anointing. So I ask you to meet the great king who was invested not with an empty office, not with a formal ceremonial office, but an office of unrivaled power given him by the decree of God himself. For this one dominates 
every human pretender to power or governmental rule upon this earth. You here meet the highest king for whom Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle uh, have the humble estate of being little more than garden sheds at his great estate in the heavenly realm. Now, Psalm 2 doesn't name its author. You heard me say it was David a moment ago. How do I know that? Well, we do know it. We actually have a rather positive clue, although there's nothing within the psalm itself. If you look in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, you find there the uh, quote speaks, uh, this psalm is quoted, Psalm 2 is quoted, and it says, David said, and goes on to give that. We know that Psalm 2 is what we call a messianic psalm. In fact, it may be the most grand of all, the messianic psalms. That is, a psalm that exalts the Messiah of Israel long before the time that he would appear in the person of Christ. Not long ago, I was watching a part of a TV program. I fell asleep, actually, I have to admit, before it was over. That's how stimulating it was. Uh, it was a good, good show, though. It was talking about the as they called it, the myth of King Arthur in England and Wales. And tracing out literally had people walking the earth of of sites and places, ruins of castles and things that have some association with Arthur and asking the question, was he a real king at all or not? And the interesting thing is, after many people have spent their lives on tantalizing bits of historical data about King Arthur and his round table. Nobody knows for sure who this guy was or if he even existed. But he certainly was someone who tantalizes us with interest about the past and romance of the past. Well, here in Psalm 2, God's word is speaking also about an idealized king, but one who actually exists now and who comes from older and higher pedigree than King Arthur and will occupy and does occupy a real throne that is not merely ceremonial like that of Queen Elizabeth or her son Charles. It's interesting how Psalm 2 breaks down into four units of three verses each. Ministers are always looking for, well, how does the text divide itself or where's the beginning of one thought or You know, how do I make my points out of this? Well, there's four points in this sermon, and they're determined by the the construction of the text itself. And each has a kind of different spokesman who is narrating. Verses 1 to 3 have one that I guess we would just call the narrator, David, telling us about the mutiny of men and nations against the Lord. It tells us that there's a clamor going on. It appears to be a constant thing. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves against God and his anointed one? Now, the name Christ or Jesus isn't used here, by the way. He's called anointed one. He's called the son. But it's very clear about whom it is speaking. And we know, of course, that Jesus came into a world that was united against him in his day. I will be treating John chapter 1 that says that quite clearly in a few weeks' time. He came and and people who didn't even like each other or have common cause in very many things united in their opposition to Jesus. That they could agree upon. He's a disturber. 
He tips the balance of world power. He's not like us. And you remember how we're told that Herod the Great and Pilate, the Roman governor, who agreed on very little and were rivals in Palestine in the time of Christ, agreed together to get rid of Jesus. They could hold that thought in common and that cause in common. Romans 8, 7 says that the natural mindset of proud humanity is at enmity towards God and the idea that he should rule over us, saying it as if humanity is raising a clenched fist at heaven and saying, God, you will not rule me. We were interviewing candidates who've been nominated through your giving names earlier this year and session approving them this morning during the Sunday school. We were interviewing for final approval, the nominees for deacon and and ruling elder, and one of them was telling us about his own progress through teenage years, through atheism and agnosticism, and and how he, I don't think he was particularly mad, but he had decided that God had no place in his life, and he was even concerned to make sure others were disabused of such a notion. Mankind raises a clenched fist towards God by nature, and particularly many who are rulers and powers do so. Now, we could easily think that that applies primarily to a Hitler or a Stalin or a bin Laden or some Islamic terrorist. But I would say take a look at what the leaders even of our own country do and say our congressmen, our senators, our president, our vice president, our judges. I'm not indicting any single individual here. I'm just saying, do our leaders indeed, when they give a speech and say at the end, God bless America, are they doing anything more than a formal codicil, perhaps, to the way they must speak? Are they really saying, I'm seeking the blessing, the power, the wisdom of God and his word for our nation. And we have to face this too, you see. We have no natural love of or or obligation to obey God, and from our births, we don't have that. We, We actively work against him. We may not have political power, but within our own little realms, we are thinking, I don't want God to be in charge. He's going to ask me to do a lot of things that I don't particularly want to do. The King James translation of Psalm 2.1 asks this question, Why do nations rage and people imagine a vain thing? What is the vain thing that people imagine? Why, it is the whole notion that mankind, individually or collectively, can shove God off of his ruling throne and take on all of the powers of determination, self-determination that need to be in operation, we can take those on ourselves. And, and by having enough intellectual achievement through education, through our personal charisma, through use of advanced technology, through having bigger weapons than anybody else, we can rule. We don't need God to rule. To a varying degree, we all start out in life part of a crowd chanting for the overthrow of the Lord our God. Now secondly, verses 4 to 6 of this psalm move more to the center of the issue and declares to us the absolute supremacy 
of God, the Creator and Father. As the Holy Spirit spoke through David here, we're told how God responds to that first three verses. People opposing him, raising their fists to him. How does God respond? It's something you, you wouldn't expect. I didn't expect if, if I would say, how should this be written? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You know this is the only verse in the Bible that God is said to laugh? And it's not a laugh of merriment or happiness. It's a laugh of scorn, isn't it? Does God gather up his armies of angels and say, why, I'll show those rulers. I'll show that guy Hitler. I'll show that guy Stalin, whoever, Osama bin Laden or whoever you want to name. I'll come with my angels and slay them and wipe them out. Doesn't say God does anything like that, does it? He laughs. In fact, commentators are specific about the Hebrew of the text in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. What's important about that? Well, the ruler doesn't even have to trouble himself. The true ruler doesn't even have to stand up or move about. He can sit in a posture of ease and laugh at that which is no threat to him whatsoever. He holds them in derision, but then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, to God, one one commentator said, you would think of a lion in his mighty repose laying in the sun, and nearby him is a, a little buzz And the buzz is a grasshopper, somehow objecting to the sitting posture of the lion because the lion is almost sitting on him, the grasshopper. But does the lion care very much about the buzz of a grasshopper? And that's the contrast we have here in this text. As human rulers fly their airplanes into New York skyscrapers or starve the people of North Korea so they can brandish missiles at the world and pretend to be important. Is God impressed by any of that? He is not. In his commentary on Psalm 2, Dr. James Boyce showed how a particular particular group of human rulers who particularly and specifically did defy God in their time, and these are Roman emperors, emperors of Rome. Boyce took up a a close study, I, I guess, of the history of the various Roman emperors, and he must have gotten into it in sources I've never looked at, but he took 30 Roman emperors, all of whom would have said, why, I'm Caesar. Nobody's bigger than I am. Nobody has more power than I have. And in one way or another would have strutted through history thinking they were great. They were these people that are assaulting the Lord with their, their bragging of power. Boyce took each of them and tracked down in history how they ended, what, what was their death or what was the end of their rule. Now, I'm not going to go through all 30 of them, but here, here are the highlights of 30, and, and all the ones I don't mention are just as bad. One of them went mad. Another was killed by his own son. Another went blind. Several died with horrible diseases that caused them agonizing suffering. Another emperor who rejected Christ, drowned. Another was strangled. 
Three were suicides. Eight were killed in battle. Oh, my. It doesn't seem like defying the Lord and strutting your power is a healthy enterprise, does it? And there are worse than that that could be told. Such were the fates of those who once commanded the mightiest armies in the ancient world. And the lesson, I think, that comes through this text to us is that the power of God is not in any way shaken one millimeter by the opposition of man in any generation of history, whether they wield atomic weapons or spears and arrows. God is laughing in derision at any power that stands against him. You've got one of the most massive numerically speaking, governments in the world, certainly the biggest government in Asia, China, who today has decided after many years of laissez-faire operation towards the house churches of booming, mushrooming new Christians coming to the Lord. And they've sort of, well, okay, you know, as long as they don't get too radical, we'll leave them alone. That's not happening anymore if you're paying attention. By the way, your your network news never tells you anything about this. But the Chinese government has really cracked down on the churches of Christ in their country. And you would think, okay, well, they've almost exterminated Christianity. They tried this decades ago. Did they exterminate Christianity? You know, under Mao in the 1940s and 50s, there was a government that said, we are communists, we tolerate nothing to do with Christ. Well... All the Americans, all the, all the foreign missionaries were kicked out. Your former pastor, Williamson, would have been a missionary to China, but the country was closed and he couldn't go. And uh, we thought for years, we didn't know what was happening in China. And then suddenly in the late 60s, it began to open up and wow, the Christians in China had multiplied not by the thousands, but the millions, the millions The blood of martyrs has always been the seed of the church. Persecute Christians, and they just pop up all over the place. And the Lord's work today responds to harsh treatment and repression, and it is untouched, unhindered, unthreatened, unharmed by the worst wrath that the enemies of opposition can bring against it. What a great thing when we see that here, as the Lord says, They aren't going to accomplish at all what they think they're going to accomplish. Well, then, in 7 to 9, we have the heart of the matter. The third point is the settled authority of Christ, the Son. Now, I say again, the names Jesus or Christ are not in this psalm, but we have the key statement in 6, I have set my king upon Zion, my holy hill. Zion is a spiritual way of saying the place where God assembles his people and they worship him. And the psalm does not say here that someday, maybe, somehow, Christ will become king. It says, I have set my king, past tense, on my holy hill. God appointed him long ago. You remember how at the trial of Jesus that truth was actually recognized by the enemies of Christ? Remember the fact that it filtered through somehow to Pilate that Jesus, I guess the Pharisees brought it up. They said he calls himself the king of the Jews. Pharisees, Pharisees told Pilate that, and Pilate said, oh, you think you're a king, huh? Oh, that's interesting. What kind of a king are you? Who are your subjects? And it was a joke. 
And Pilate's soldiers picked it up, and you know what they did. They made it into a mocking pantomime, giving Jesus a crown of thorns and a purple robe and a reed to hold as a separate scepter. What a joke! What kind of a king would ever be subjected to this lowly, degraded treatment that Jesus is in, subject to us common soldiers? But the irony, of course, was that he was the king. He was the greatest king of all. He had the power of rising from the dead. And we may ask, after looking at those soldiers' treatment of him, who is laughing now? The soldiers were laughing then. They're not laughing today. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said in Acts 2, God made this Jesus whom you crucified, he told people in Jerusalem, God has made him Lord and Christ. Lord means ruler, high ruler. And David was speaking here centuries before the cross that Peter was preaching about, saying he already, the son of the father, already has been crowned. And his strong arm may not be visible to you. Nevertheless, he is ruling and one day he will return and the nations will be his heritage and his inheritance. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. That is, of course, those who resist him, those who will not have him, whole nations. And human rulers who have opposed and mocked God's king will be broken into rubble when the king appears in his glory at the last day. Dr. Boyce, in his tracking of how Roman emperors reacted to Christianity, saved one delicious little story illustration about the emperor Diocletian who ruled in the 3rd century approximately 250 and onward. Now, I don't know, if you've, if you've really studied Roman history, you've probably heard of Diocletian, but I guarantee you, you don't go around every day thinking about Diocletian. Or really probably even know who he is. Well, here was an emperor who crucified thousands of Christians. He had a special venom against Christianity, and he wanted to do everything he possibly could do to oppose it. And there's a monument, I'm told, in Spain that Diocletian erected, apparently because Spain was the farthest westward reach of the empire. Here's what he had put uh, carved on the bottom of the monument that has a statue of himself. The words on the statue say, I, Diocletian, have extended the empire of Rome to the east and the west, and I have extinguished the name of Christians, having everywhere abolished the superstitions created by the one called Christ. Is that a joke or what? This puny man, in his power in a certain moment of the third century, said, I alone have destroyed the Christians. I wonder how many people read that statue inscription and walk away laughing. Let that monument teach us to have a right perspective on human history. The empire of Rome was actually nearing its end when that tiny man with an inflated ego thought he had eliminated Christ. With good reason it can be said, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. He laughs at North Korea. He laughs at any nation that rises up against the Lord and his truth. He laughs, folks, at leaders of the United States of America, if we think we can rule without him.
if we can rule without the wisdom of his word. We cannot remove a single soul from the everlasting accomplishment of the true king, King Jesus. And he's laughing if we think we can. Fourth and finally, you would heed what is said here in verses 10 to 12 very quickly. A warning and an invitation combined together. God's one refuge from destruction is offered by Christ the king. This is what it says. You kings, anybody who rules anything, you be warned, O rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice before him with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are those who take refuge in him. Two alternatives, wrath or refuge, are here. Jesus Christ is painted here in colors as a king, a picture that we don't normally think about, I don't believe. And we're told the Son of God is not anything like Charles, the son of Queen Elizabeth, who anxiously awaits, will I be king? Will anybody ever bow before me or listen to me? Will I ever wear a crown? Christ is a king. He is God's appointed king over the universe. And his throne was established in ancient times. His ruling authority stands firm right now. And we're told here the proud pretensions of those who might temporarily seem to be dangerous enemies to his reign are nothing. Christ will not need an iron scepter to put down those enemies. He will not need an atomic weapon to obliterate those who presently scorn him for their brief hour in history today. The mere breath of his mouth will slay those who stand against him. You know, we don't, of course, live under a king, at least not in earthly terms. But if we had lived in a feudal kingdom of ancient times, we would have been well advised to know the protocol of living then. You, you had to know how to act towards your king. And you approached any high king with reverence and awe. You didn't want to upset him. You certainly didn't want to, you know, somehow malign him or be seen as his opponent. If he had absolute power, he'd kill you. And so you bowed low in homage and you kissed the hem of his robe if you were invited into his presence or maybe his hand, maybe a ring that he wore. Perhaps in this psalm too, the picture of Christ here is one you're not used to because you don't like to think of Jesus as having wrath against opponents. But I would ask you to look at the alternative. In place of experiencing his wrath, he offers you refuge. And I advise you to take it while the offer is open. Refuge in Christ. Father, what a graphic picture you paint here in this psalm through David. We worship your son. We realize he's not the lowly Jesus, meek and mild, who has no defense against his enemies. He is in charge of his enemies. He sits and watches their behavior, and he is ready at the proper time when he returns to slay his enemies. Thank you, though, that he's a king who offers refuge. I pray, O oh God, that anyone here who has not taken refuge in him, anyone here who has not hit, kissed the hem of 
of his garment and said, My Lord and my God would consider that action even this day. Amen.